So if you want to open with me to 1 John 1, we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 13. Sorry, not 1 John. John 1, 1 to 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, family, brothers and sisters, it is good to be together today. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the leaders of our church family, and every single Sunday we get the opportunity to get together, and we call this our family reunion. So uh, amongst our staff and our leaders, we don't actually call this church because church is a group of people. Uh, Church is not a place that we go. So if you are new to our church family, we refer to Sunday mornings as our family reunion. I'd encourage you to use that language. Uh, My youngest son, Cade, he's three years old, and we went over to my in-law's place for for lunch last Sunday afternoon, and my mother-in-law said, how is church today? And my little three-year-old, Cade, said, it's not church. Nana, it's reunion. And so um, we are training our children in the way that they should go, the way that we ought to think about the church as God's people. So welcome church. It is excellent to have the opportunity to gather together today. Well, I was at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival yesterday, had the opportunity to see the fantastic movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, which is going to be coming out. Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. It was amazing. And one thing that Mr. Rogers incorporated into his show, he was brilliant, was allowing and inviting kids to experience their emotion. He understood that children were not just thinking beings, that they were feeling beings, and that children needed to be invited into having a place that they could experience their emotion because we are thinking beings and we are feeling beings. So before I jump into our message, I'd love to invite you to take a moment to do a personal check-in and see how you're feeling this morning. And if you would, if you are a Jesus person, you can invite Jesus into that. And even if you're not a Jesus person, I'd encourage you or challenge you to invite Jesus into that emotion. Not believing that Jesus wants to immediately change how you're feeling, but simply address and experience your emotion with you. So why don't you do that and then we'll keep going this morning. And so, God, we do thank you that you made us beings that think and feel. 
And this morning, God, I don't know where everyone is at that is in this room today, but God, um, the room with this many people in it, certainly there are people across the spectrum feeling many different things. And so I thank you, Jesus, that you see each person here and you know how they're feeling, and we pray that you would meet them in that. We're excited and encouraged by the opportunity to gather together today, and we pray that we would be challenged and changed as we meet and that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts. We thank you. In your name, amen. Well, I want to, you would imagine a bit of a scenario with me as we begin this morning. Imagine that a plague breaks out in the city of Guelph, and this plague is leading to the death of numerous amounts of people, and it's discovered that as you come in contact with somebody with this disease or with this plague, that you would die. What would your response be? A lot of the response of the people in our city would be to run, right? And so you're watching people run. Cars are leaving. People are going away. They're trying to get within a very far distance from the city. They're freaking out. They don't want to die. This is actually not a fictitious story. It's not happening right now in Guelph. But back in the Roman Empire, in the city of Alexandria, in 260 AD, there was a plague. And there was a plague, actually, that affected the Roman Empire from 249 to 262. It was called the Cyprian Plague. And it would have dramatic effects in cities, in urban populations. And in the city of Alexandria, in 260 AD, there was a 62% drop in the population due to this plague. There were dead bodies in the streets. And people were fleeing the city in droves. But believe it or not, there was a group of people that didn't leave the city. And the group of people that didn't leave the city were the Christians, the local church. And they took it upon themselves to say, we are going to bathe the sick. We are going to literally bleed for our city, bleed for our neighborhoods, and come alongside these people. And eventually the plague was actually overcome. And it was overcome in part because of the hygienic practices of the Christians who would bathe the sick. And many of them themselves died. But they said, we're not going anywhere. If there's a tragedy affecting our city, affecting our culture, we are going to stay and care for the sick. It's an incredible example. It's the sort of example that we look, we look at and we say, would I have done the same thing? Now, of course, we then have to ask the question of why would they do this? Why would they, at the expense of themselves and for some of them, their own lives, stay in their city if this was what was going on? And as I said, it was the Christians, the church, and the reason that they stayed, the reason that they remained, the reason that they bathed the sick— was because they had faith and put their trust in a person, in Jesus Christ, who had come and had served them. Because the gospel, the good news of God, had changed them, because they recognized how they had been served, they're looking out at the world and saying, who would we to run? We have to serve the world that's around us. We have to serve our city. We must serve our culture. We must be neighbors. And neighbors are called to love because Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we must give our lives and serve as well. We began exploring last week what the gospel is. And the gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And what we explored and what we realized last week is that when we trust the good news of the gospel, it changes who we are. 
And then therefore, from who we are, we will then know how to live. When you know who you are, you will know what to do. And so these Christians in the city of Alexandria knew what to do because they knew who they were. Their identity had been changed, and therefore they knew what they were to do and how they were to respond to their city. Now, you might be asking the question, okay, how does this identity thing work? And to give us a bit of a picture of how this identity thing works, I want to invite you, we're going to start at the beginning of the story, and that's creation, Genesis 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can go with me to Genesis 1 and 2. I will have the verses on the screen because we're going to be going through them quickly, but if you would like to underline these things in your Bible, I'd encourage you to do that. And so Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we're going to start in Genesis 1, verse 26. This is what we read. This is the creation narrative, the creation account of why things exist. Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, after God had said and created a number of other things, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at this or noticed this detail before, but notice how God is speaking In the plural, he's saying, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. You would think that God might say, let me make man in my image after my likeness. He says our, and he's speaking of the Trinitarian relationship of the God that Christians serve. The God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's saying, let us make man in our image In the image of God, he would go on to create them. So Genesis 1 verse 27 tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So human beings, we need to recognize right here is that we have been made in the image of God, the imago Dei, meaning that we have value. And so Christians have always looked at the world, understanding this, that every human being on the planet has value. This is why Christians hold to a belief that life inside of the womb is human life, and therefore this human life is valuable. It's vulnerable, and it's valuable. Every single human life has value because they've been, every human being is made in the image of God. This is the beginning stages of understanding who we are as a people, is that we are human beings made in the image of God. What is our identity? People made in the image of God. Well, what happened to this image? Because many of us don't necessarily feel like we've been made in the image of God, or we look at the world and it doesn't seem like people understand their identity. This is in Genesis 3, where human beings, rather than trusting God and the identity that he had given them, pursue an identity apart from God. Genesis 3, verse 5, we'll start there. This is Satan tempting these first humans. For God knows that when you eat of it, he's speaking of this fruit of a tree. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Notice the temptation here. They were already made in the image of God. But what does he tell them? You will be like God from doing what? From doing something to have an identity. In Genesis 1, human beings have an identity. We know who then who we are. Then we'll know what to do. Satan is trying to reverse the order. Do something, then you'll know who you are. He's saying your doing will lead to your being, whereas God says, no, your being leads to your doing. 
what's the result? Well, Eve, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're shameful. They're certainly shameful of their bodies. And then the results of this lack of trusting God and instead trusting themselves and their own identity is this is what we read by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return enter death confusion we read that there will be toil as people work there will be toil as people labor and again the temptation is to not trust God in the identity that he has give you instead trust yourself and when you trust yourself you'll trust to create your identity from what you do will lead to who you are whereas God from the very beginning said no you are made in my image and therefore from that image you will then know what to do and human beings ever since have been caught in this cycle of trying to define themselves by what they do rather than understanding who we are. And isn't that really the story of the rest of the Old Testament? People confused about who they are. The Israelite people specifically are on display as people constantly trying to define themselves by the culture around them or what they can do for themselves. And prophets coming and trying to call people back to you. Do you not realize who you are? You're God's people. He loves you. He's made a covenant with you. Come back to God. Recognize who you are. Then you'll know what to do. Don't focus on your doing to lead to who you are and your being. Look at who God made you to be, who he is and what he has done, which will then tell you who you are. Well, where's the redemption? And the redemption is in Jesus. Many of us know the life and the biography that we can read about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John. But have you ever noticed what Jesus in his great commission says to his followers? He says, go and make disciples. So go with me there. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. This is Jesus as, as he's just about to go back to the Father. He makes an identity statement, and it, we can so easily miss this. And so I hope to point it out to us today so we can see how powerful and important this is. Matthew 28, 18 to 19, Jesus says to his followers and to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Incredible statement. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Then he tells his followers, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then what are we to do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to read that second part again. It's so critical. Make disciples of all nations. Then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Have any of you ever caught that before and realized the significance of that statement? You know, when we baptize people, as we have in our church family before, um, usually when I'm baptizing someone, I say over them, or if somebody else is baptizing, we, we baptize someone, and baptism means immerse. It, it, it's the Greek word baptizo. It quite literally means to soak, to immerse. And so what Jesus is indicating, what Jesus is instructing is when you baptize people, when you immerse people underwater, you baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're baptizing them into their new identity, their restored identity under God, made in his image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
When someone comes to know Christ and they are baptized, they are baptized into their identity. Their identity is being restored because the identity has been broken. So when we baptize and we say that, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's not just, oh, this is a nice thing to say over someone's baptism. No. It's a statement to those that are watching and to the person that what is happening here is death to life, new identity, new whole person. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 describes what happens when we come to Christ, when we trust in Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When someone comes to know Jesus, they're baptized into their new identity. They are now reminded that their life is about who they are, what God has done for them, and then they'll know what to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with our doing leading to our being. But what our baptism signifies and represents is a reminder that we have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into being reminded of who we are and what God has done for us. And then one day we look forward to our restoration when God is with us, when we are with him. There's no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. We explored this a little bit last week. So what this means is that if you and I are to know who we are or why the church exists, and this is what we're doing right now, right? We're in the middle of our vision series, answering the question like, who are we as a church? Why do we exist? Why do we keep showing up? Why do we keep setting up chairs? Why do we continue to engage with one another in missional communities? Because of what God has done for us. And so we begin with answering the question of who we are based on who God is, what God has done, which then tells us who we are. Now, some of you, you've been around our church family for a while. Uh, Those of you, some of you are in this room. You were actually part of our planting team five to six years ago. I'm preaching the same sermon basically every single year because we forget it. But some of you have never heard this before. And so this is going to help you understand more clearly who we are and why we do what we do. And who we are is based on who God is, what God has done, which then leads to our identity of who we are, and then we'll know what to do. So who is God? Well, God is Father. This is on the slide. Next. Next. Who God is, what God has done, who we are, and what we are to do. So let's start with who God is. It's going to come up on the screen. Well, God is Father, God is Holy Spirit, God is the Son. What has God done? As we just read, God has created us in his image, and he adopts us as his children, which means who are we? Family. I'm just going to stop there for a second, okay? Does this make sense? If this makes sense, would you please raise your hand as we're trying to do this identity thing? Does this make sense? How we figure out who we are is based on who God is, what God has done, which then leads to our identity. It doesn't start with who are we, then what do we do, then who God is, then what God has done. That's backwards. We start with who God is, what God has done, which then tells us who we are. So who are we? We, the church, are family. Why? Because we've been created in the image of God, and we've been adopted as his children. Now, let's walk out this adoption family thing a little bit more. John 1, verses 12 to 13. Andrea read it earlier. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. But to all who did receive him... 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. Galatians 3 verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 4 verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 1 John 3 verse 1, Behold the greatness of God's love for us, that we should be called children of God. What does this mean? Well, simply put, God the Father adopts us as his children through Jesus the Son. Okay, so next question. What does it mean to be adopted by God the Father? Some of us are like, okay, so we're family. You're reading this language of adoption, but what does it actually mean to be adopted by the Father? And friends, this is good news. Number one, it means that we have a new name. If you put your trust in Jesus and you're adopted into his family, you have a new name. You know, some of us in this room, and you know immediately if I'm talking to you, are not happy with your last name. Because your last name represents a history. And that history is a broken history. That history is a hurtful history. That history is a history that you would like nothing to do with. And every time somebody says your name, they say your first name, and then they say your last name, you cringe. You say, I wish that wasn't my last name. I wish I didn't need to identify with this name. Maybe for some of us, it's because we have fathers that we are not pleased with because they were not fair. They were not just. They were not good dads. But we share the same name as our father because it's been handed down to us. When you are adopted into God's family, you are given a new name. When Jesus is baptized, a voice from heaven comes and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When you are adopted into God's family, the same thing that God the Father says over Jesus the Son, he says over you. So my name is now Matt, a beloved child of the Most High God with whom he is well pleased. I am a beloved of God the Father. He loves me. He's adopted me into his family. I have a new name. My last name is not what defines me and my family. The new name that I have through Jesus and God the Father adopting me through Jesus the Son is now my new name. Some of us in this room, that feels heavy. But it also feels right. And it feels good because of the brokenness and the injustice that we have experienced at the hands of our families. But when you're adopted by God the Father through Jesus the Son, when you put your faith in Jesus the Son and what he has done for you, what he says over you, he says your name, child of God. That your last name is not now what defines you. Your new name 
being a child of the Most High God with whom he is well pleased is what defines you because you're part of a new family with a new name. Secondly, what this means to be adopted by the Father is that you are chosen, that we are chosen, and that we belong. We are chosen and we belong. Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 6 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hear this. Even as he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. That's an incredible statement. It means if you've come to know Christ, he has chosen you before the foundation of the world, before you were even born, before you ever dreamed of, before your family was around. He chose you before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friends, you are chosen and you belong. Some of us maybe feel like we are black sheeps in our family. Some of us maybe feel like we are always the last chosen ones. Some of us maybe feel like we don't identify with our family. Some of us maybe feel like we're lost in the world. Some of us have maybe been told, you know, you are an accident. No. No. <laughs> Never forget, a pastor by the name of Rick Warren said, there is such thing as illegitimate parents, but there's no such thing as an illegitimate child. There's such thing as illegitimate parents, there's no such thing as an illegitimate child. And when you come to know Christ, he is speaking over, you are my chosen one, and you belong in my family. Every single one of us, based on broken relationships and broken identities in our family, struggle to hear this. And we've been living experience in which we don't feel like we're chosen, we don't feel like we belong. But in the family of God, you have been chosen and you belong. He wants you. And look at the great lengths that he went to get you. Thirdly, we are loved. When you're adopted by the Father, you recognize that you are loved John 3.16, don't miss it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How, why did God do that? For God so loved the world. Not just the world in general, you. Romans 5 verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you've been adopted into the Father's family, he gives you his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who brings the love of God alive to you. It's been poured, he's been poured into your hearts. If you're struggling to experience the love of God, pray to the Holy Spirit that he would bring, bring the love of God to life in you. You know, when we're praying for people at the end of services here, that's my primary prayer for people. Holy Spirit, come. May, you, may they feel the love of God through you in their bodies. Bring them to life. Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, God delights in you. You are his child Nothing drives away shame more than believing that God delights in you. 
Fourthly, we are secure when we've been adopted into God's family. We are secure. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. This is also connected to the Great Commission. So he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But then what does he say? So many of us have said this, but we forget the promise of it. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is a statement of security. I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. You're not alone. I am with you. You are secure. Romans 8, 38 to 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are secure in his love. Fifthly, we have a future. Jesus in John 14, 2-3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place to you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wants to be with you. He has a future in mind for you and for him. He wants to be with you forever. Philippians 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You might be saying, I'm a, I'm a work in progress. He knows! And he's going to bring it to completion. He promises that. Sixthly, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is one, imperishable, two, undefiled, and thirdly, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, it's, it's a very um, realistic thing when we're speaking about our parents' deaths to be thinking about an inheritance. You know, some of us who are parents already are thinking, you know, what, what I, you know, accumulate for my family will then get passed on. The value that I have in my home will be passed on to my kids. You have no control over how they're going to use it. Some of us don't feel like we have an inheritance. Maybe there isn't. But that stuff's all going to go away. Notice what we're told here that the inheritance that we have from God is imperishable. It's not going to go away. It's undefiled and it's unfading and it's kept in heaven. It's in safekeeping. And who's it for? For you and I when we've been adopted into God's family through Jesus the Son. And then seventh, when we've been adopted into God's family, what this also signals is that we have a new family. Jesus in Mark 3 verses 34 to 35 said to those who are sitting about him when his mother and sister, mother and siblings have come to take him away. This is what he said. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sisters and mother. 
the primary family for the follower of Jesus is not the blood family of your history. It's the new spiritual family. And Jesus' vision for a new community is where spiritual kinship and not physical relationship is the fundamental basis for family. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you're in this room today, you can look left and you can look right, and these people are your family. These people are your brothers and your sisters. You know, we have brothers and sisters who are followers of Jesus on the other side of the world, and they quite literally, when they come to know Jesus, may be kicked out of their family. Through our connection with the missionary that we support in Lebanon, there are people within his local church who are in Lebanon as refugees because they have needed to flee from their families of origin because they came to know Jesus. They converted to Christ, and their family said, if you do not give up your faith in Jesus, we are going to kill you. And these people have said, no. Christ is primary. And so the church that they have now fled to, to be refugees in Lebanon, has now needed to become, in a more real, tangible way, their family. You know how a family is connected, right? Family is connected through blood, right? How is the family of God connected through blood? Through the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. And what does that mean? We share the blood of Christ. And when we take communion, that's what we're doing. We're celebrating the the blood of our older brother, who died and shed his blood for us so that we could be joined in this to the same family. That makes sense. It's powerful. So we do share the same blood. It's the blood of our Savior and King Jesus. And so in summary, through faith in Jesus, we are adopted by the Father and welcomed into the family. And so who are we? We are the family of God. Brothers and sisters. Under our Father, and our older brother Jesus, filled with the Spirit. That's who we are. So the next question is, well, what does family do? What does family do? Well, I think primarily, we could start with this. Family loves one another. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 10, we read this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. How many times is love repeated in that verse? A whole heck of a lot. But what does this verse tell us is that those who have experienced the love of God, who God is and what God has done, they are the family. And what are they going to do? They're going to love people. Isn't that why those Christians in the city of Alexandria stuck around? Because they'd experienced the love of God for them through trusting in Christ. And they looked at the world around them and said, well, if we've been served like this, if we've been loved in this way, who would we be to run? We've got to love and serve the people that are around us. Because that's how we've been loved and served. So friends, brothers and sisters, as a result of us being family and experiencing God's love for us in Christ, 
We are to show love for one another by serving one another. I'm going to say that again. As we are brothers and sisters in Christ under our Father God, adopted through Jesus the Son and his perfection, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are family, and family expresses their love for one another by serving one another. Family loves one another by serving one another. I'm going to say it again. Family loves one another by serving each other. Family loves one another by serving each other. In two weeks, um, September the 29th, we have made a decision as leadership that we do not have enough people to provide a healthy discipleship environment for our kids. And one of the reasons is that, that that is is because we don't have enough volunteers in our city kids ministry. Now, rather than running a program in which we would put your kids at danger and risk because there would be four volunteers for 50 or 60 kids, we have made the decision to say we're not going to let that happen. And what we will do is we will not provide a city kids ministry program because what our value and desire is is that we would disciple your children to go and to follow and love Jesus in this world. And we can't provide that. We are not providing a daycare service. We are providing an environment to disciple children because we want them to grow up and to love Jesus. And so we have made a decision as a leadership to say, you know what? We're not going to run the risk of small numbers. We're just not going to run a program. And what we're going to do is this whole service is going to be like a kid's ministry. I'm going to preach a message that would be basically I'd be able to give in kids to kids to hopefully then also show us as adults and people how you disciple young kids, how you teach them the ways of Jesus, how you watch Toy Story and take out the truths of the gospel as you teach your children. So I'm not, I hope that you're not hearing this and saying, they don't care about my kids. No, that we're making this decision because we care about your children, and then we want to show you how to love and disciple your kids, and your kids are equally as part of this church as much as you are. You know, what's going on over there isn't like, oh, it's just over there. No, they're, they're our church. They're not the future of the church. They are the church now. Now, some of you serve in more than one area of our church. Some of you are serving on facilities, and then when you're not on facilities, you're serving in kids. Some of you are serving on front lines, and when you're not serving on front lines, you're serving in kids. If you are one of those people, don't worry about serving more, serving more. Because there are those of us in our family that hear this and are like, oh boy, i got to serve in kids too. No, you need to sit down. You're serving our family. This is a call to you. If you are part of our church family, if you would say, I'm not planning on going anywhere else, and you don't serve. If you are that person and a follower of Jesus, you are part of the family. You're a brother and sister. And what does the family of God do? Family loves one another and therefore serves each other. Let me say that again. Family loves one another and serves each other. This isn't a guilt trip. This is a correction. If you are part of the family of God, that you are called to serve your brothers and sisters. Would you ever let someone who was living under your roof do nothing? Leave dishes everywhere? Don't wash them? No, you challenge them and you say, listen, you can't pay for the stuff that you're eating, but you can certainly wash the dishes. Because we all participate. We all contribute. Why? Because we're a family. We're brothers and sisters. We serve each other. 
Why do we serve each other? Because God the Father has shown us how to love and to serve each other because he has loved and served us. You know the one area we never have to do a call out for serving? Music. You know why? Now, I'm not, I, I, we got to challenge our musicians because it's really easy to get up there and with your gift be rocking out, right? And serving in that area is, is a way to sort of build out some of your identity. It can. I think that's why a lot of people who are in that in the area wider than our own church but others areas can really struggle with trying to find their identity and like look at what I do I lead worship I'm known for what I can do in playing my musician and instruments we never have to give a call out for music never because people who are musicians are like I can use my gift you know people will see me it kind of adds to my identity we always have to give calls out for city kids. We always have to give calls out for facilities. Why? Because it's not sexy. It's not glamorous. Facilities shows up here at 8 a.m. and they set up chairs. That's not glamorous or sexy. But you know what I was reminding our, our, our facilities team of this morning? That they serve the rest of our family. So that we can all show up and we can enjoy this morning and enjoy our reunion together and love each other right? They set chairs up so that maybe people who are a part of this gathering today who don't know and love Jesus can come and hear the good news of Jesus and come to know Christ and then begin serving the family. So friends, family loves one another and the way that we love one another is we serve one another. And if you are part of this family, if you would say, I am part of the family of God, big C family of God, big C church, and that this is your family, we expect you to serve. If you don't serve, you're simply a consumer. Participate in the family. It's an amazing opportunity to give and to love and to serve. And if you feel like I need to step away from like city kids or something because I'm kind of burnt out, then help set up a chair. Maybe you're not in a healthy emotional capacity to love and disciple children, but maybe you can certainly help by setting up a chair. And that's not diminishing what, what those folks are doing here at, when they're setting up chairs. There's just a different emotional availability and capacity when you're setting up chairs versus running around with kids and showing them the love of Jesus. I think that makes sense. So we love one another. And here's the result of this love. John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Oh my goodness. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, there are people that visit our church family here on Sunday mornings, and they are blown away because they've never been part of something like this before, how much organization goes into making this happen. And it's like, are all these people paid? No, we're volunteers. Well, why do we do it? Because we love God and we serve him. By this, all people will know that my, you are my disciples if you love one another and if you serve each other. Come on. Jeff Vanderstelt and Ben Conley in the Gospel Fluency Handbook with some of us have gone through says this, do you love people? More specifically, do you love those who are different, who don't live like you or believe what you believe? If not, I want to encourage you to ask God to grant you his heart for people. Ask him to give you love for your neighbors, coworkers, family members, and friends. Invite him to fill your heart with his love and then ask him to enable you to feel what he feels for people. Remember, he loved you while you were still a sinner, his enemy. 
Jesus suffered and died to forgive you of your sins, make you a child of God, and pour the love of God into your heart by his spirit. So ask him to give you his heart for people. If you do, be ready. You will find that his love is greater than you imagined and deeper than you know. And then as we love one another, as God in Christ loved us, what else will we do? Well, secondly, we're going to share life together. So we'll love one another. We'll then share life together. And how do we share life together? We're probably going to eat together. That's a great way of sharing life. How many of us in this room like to eat? I like to eat, right? We like to eat. We're going to listen to each other. We're going to share our stories. We're going to ask questions like, where are you from? You know, tell me about your family of origin because it's going to affect how you're going to see ourselves as being part of the family. You can ask questions like, what are two formative events from your life story? You can ask questions like, how did you meet Jesus if someone knows Jesus? You can ask questions like, what is the Holy Spirit teaching you right now? I want to listen. I want to hear what's going on. You're then going to bless each other This was said by Tertullian, the leader of the early church. This is what he wrote. We call each other brothers because we share everything except for our wives. We call each other brothers because we share everything except for our wives. You know, in my missional community, um, I've got a lawn, and uh, I need a weed whacker sometimes for my lawn to do the edges, right? Well, someone else in our missional community bought a weed whacker. So guess what? I don't need to buy a weed whacker. He's got one. And so we share our stuff. We're going to celebrate together. This might be birthdays, traditions, holidays, or milestones. In our missional community, we've been celebrating birthdays. We organize it. You know, we get each other a gift card. We sign a card every time there's a birthday. I heard of a missional community this week. They get pinatas for every birthday, and every week they're whacking pinatas or however amount of birthdays there are. Maybe, I don't know if they do pinatas for adult birthdays too. Probably worth doing. I'd like to whack a pinata sometimes. You know, this is what the family does together. We share life together, and then we recreate together. You know, we go, and, we, go, we go and do things together. We have fun together. We enjoy one another's company as we share life together. You know, it can be so tricky that as we talk about this, that because we're so used to defining ourselves by what we do, that as we hear a message like this, that we can go, oh man, I've really failed. I've really messed up. Or you're feeling like a guilt trip from me saying, hey guys, we've got to serve But remember, it's our heart that needs to be changed, and our heart is changed when we'll be reminded of who God is and what he has done, which then tells us who we are. You see, when we live from who we are, we will know what to do, and who we are is family adopted by the Father through through Jesus the Son, loving one another and sharing life together. When we live from who we are, we will know what to do, and who we are is family adopted by the Father through Jesus the Son, loving one another and sharing life together. And family, this is so basic. So basic. Who are we? We're a family. Why? Because God the Father has adopted us as his children. And what does family do? We love one another. We share life together. And we love one another by serving each other. And how will then the world know 
that we are disciples of Jesus by how we love and how we're serving one another. That's amazing. And we have so fallen short. And so we have, can be so thankful to God's grace expressed and shown us in Christ that he has saved us even while we are sinners and while we still struggle with sin. We're going to take communion now. And so I think I've prepared us for communion. That as we're about to celebrate God serving us, that we ought to reflect on our own lives of love, recognizing that we are family, recognizing that we have been adopted. And so as you confess your sin to God, maybe you'd even turn to the person beside you and confess your sin to them. Then maybe you'd say, I need to press in. I want the Holy Spirit to make the love of God real to me. Ask him to do that. He's faithful and true and just. Let's pray. You're going to take the element. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to participate. If you're not, just let the the stuff pass by. And as you do that, hold it, and then I'll come up after a song, and we'll all take it together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we've been adopted into the family. And we are brothers and sisters. And God, this is heavy because we struggle to love. We so struggle to love. We struggle to serve. So God, challenge our hearts today. May we love and serve one another. And may the world know that we are disciples of Jesus by how we love one another. We thank you.